I think what's hard is for some people, the label is empowering, just like a diagnostic label, figuring out why you are the way you are and putting a name to it can feel like I'm not crazy, but also we can overly attach to the label and then there's no space for growth or change. This episode is going to be so good. I feel like Amanda and I could have been friends back in the day. I feel like we wouldn't have been really good for one another because of how we both clearly used to drink, but still. My guest for today is Amanda E. White. She's a licensed therapist and the creator of the popular Instagram account, Therapy for Women. She also recently wrote a book called Not Drinking Tonight, a guide to creating a sober life you love, and we'll be diving right into that. She's also the founder and owner of the group therapy practice, Therapy for Women Center, based in Philadelphia, and she serves clients across the country. She specializes in substance use disorders and eating disorders and has also been featured in places like Forbes, Washington Post, Shape, Women's Health Magazine, and more, and has a really unique expertise and accessible approach to healing and mental health. We are diving into things like what is sober curious and are there different types of sobriety? Also, what does the history of substance use treatment look like? We're going, I mean, from asylums, all the way to community-based care like Alcoholics Anonymous. Also, in case you didn't realize, alcohol is a main character in our society, and we're diving into how you've been conditioned to drink in all areas of your life and ways to figure out if you may be engaging in what we call disordered drinking. And then if you realize that you are, how do you address the shame that's potentially associated with that? What are the signs that it's getting worse than just being disordered? And then how do you get out of that and create a life that you love and a life of meaning to help you maintain your recovery? I hope you like it. Let's go. Amanda White, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be here. It's so good to chat with you. Well, we have a great topic that we're discussing today, but as the title of the podcast implies, I would love to know just about who you are as a human. Mm. Who are you? I'm a dog mom. I'm very obsessed with my dogs. Mm. I'm a wife. Um, I live in Philadelphia. I'm in recovery. That's a very big, important part of my life. And really, I feel like how I see the world and how I show up because that has impacted my life so much. And I'm someone who still struggles with my mental health and is probably on a constant journey of figuring out what works for myself. And <laughs> then something changes and then I have to figure it out again and kind of being in, in that process. That's so true, right? Like I think a lot of people assume, oh, well, if you have a problem and you're a therapist, it's a mental health problem, like just, just solve it. And it'll yeah. go away. And it yeah. doesn't really work like that. <laughs> I used to also be so obsessed with the idea that like, I'll figure it out and then I'll be good. And it's like, you figure it out and then something else in your life changes and then you have to figure it out again. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. I fully yeah. feel you on that. So what is your why? What is your why? You as a human, but yeah. you're a therapist. And so, well, yeah, what's your why? The reason behind you, why you do what you do. Well, I saw a lot of therapists growing up who I didn't like and who I didn't connect with. And I lied to a lot of therapists really because I felt intimidated by them. And they were kind of like, they never shared about themselves and I didn't feel like they were human. Mm. So 
I finally found a therapist after I graduated college who changed my life. I loved therapy and I like promised myself that if I could get into recovery, I would do the same for others. And it's, it's truly the most amazing feeling to be able to witness people grow and change. I just think it's something that's, that you don't get over every time you see it. Yeah. That actually just made me emotional because that's so true. Deep therapeutic work with another human being. If you understand like the sanctity of life, it's like to change their life or the direction of where their life was going is just like, it hits the heart so much, you know, Yeah, it really does. I, I, I want to ask, cause I feel like there's probably some people, some listeners that have lied to their therapist before, <laughs> and I've definitely lied to mine before too. And I'm curious, like, why did you feel like you needed to lie? And now that you are a therapist, what would you say to clients or maybe not, obviously not yours, but people who are clients about lying or not feeling safe to tell the truth? Yeah. I mean, I lied because I was such a people pleaser and I really cared about, I cared more that my therapist liked me or that they thought I was getting better than actually telling the truth. And I think a lot of us can feel, you know, after a certain amount of sessions, you can almost get sick of yourself not Mm. changing. So you just say that you're making progress because you don't want to deal with why you're not making progress. Mm. Or I think for myself too, I would say I was going to try a lot of the suggestions. I would be like, yeah, definitely. Like, you know, I'll try to, you know, practice mindfulness or (laughs) take a break or say no, (laughs) or set boundaries or do all these things you're telling me to do but I would either not do it and say I did, or I would do it to like prove that it wouldn't work. So I had this whole context of like, yeah, I'm going to do this just to tell you just because I know that this won't work. Um, And I think that's really common that we don't realize sometimes. Oh, it's so common. I'm like hearing you and I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Yep. That's it. That's it right there for sure. And I think it's a great segue into our topic for today, which is like, how do we get out of that cycle, you know, of like, I'm going to try it, but it's not going to work and so on. And so episodes called the truth about addiction, sobriety, and being sober curious. So before we actually get into the depth, the topic, the truth, let's (laughs) first, I want to define, you know, what the key words of this episode are, because people, people think addiction and sobriety in a different way. And a lot of the listeners may not know what sober curious means. So how would do you define addiction, sobriety, and sober curious? Well, sober curious is the idea that you're not sure if you want to be sober or quit drinking, but you're interested in it. You're curious about it. And maybe you either want to cut back on your drinking or take a break and kind of see how it goes. I think a lot of people get overwhelmed by the idea of sobriety. They think to stop doing something is dramatic or only something to do if you have a serious problem. And I think we Mm. can think someone has a problem only if they've lost so much in their life. And otherwise you should just keep going and there's nothing wrong. You know, and we think like, unless you've lost your job or your family or been to jail or gotten a DUI or these severe things, you don't have a problem. And a lot of people struggle silently because of that. And to me, an addiction is anything that you use to escape yourself that makes your life unmanageable and has a pattern of 
it's becoming more and more like the, the trend is like going up and your life is becoming more unmanageable. When I think about that, it's like, you're so right. You know, what came up for me as you were talking was like, we kind of do it both ways where we compare what we're doing to other people. Like sometimes our situation is so bad in our own opinion, but we say, oh, it's not that bad because somebody else's is worse, but that could be like, oh, I'm not allowed to feel bad. Or it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not bad. Like you can take that either way. And I think a lot of it for addiction is like, yeah, just like you said, I haven't been to jail. I'm keeping my job. That doesn't mean, you know, it's kind of, what are you valuing? Right? Like, but what about you? What about your body? What about your mental health? It's not really just about the daily functions of life. And I'm sure we'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah, And I think the issue too, is that when we have it, that you're either an addict or an alcoholic, you have a problem or you don't, there isn't space to explore. There's this idea that you either are that or you're not. And if you're not, you shouldn't be questioning your relationship with anything. You shouldn't be interested in changing anything. So it creates this weird dynamic where if you do question it, then you're almost admitting you have a problem. And there's a lot of shame tied in with that. So what about sobriety? There's so many different like aspects of sobriety, you know, like lately it's been like the California sober or like just, or full sobriety or maintenance, or I don't know what, what are, how would you define sobriety in terms of how we're going to talk about it today on this episode? And maybe there's a few definitions. Yeah, I think there are a few definitions. I mean, I can say for me in my life, sobriety means facing life kind of head on and not relying on things to take the edge off or numb myself. And it's kind of like living life fully present and fully awake. It can be different for different people. Or, you know, for me, that looks like I take medication for my mental health. There's some weird stigma that sometimes still exists with medication and with sobriety or in the addiction field. So I think it does depend on what's going on, but for me, that's important. It's an important tool in being sober. There is a huge spectrum, right? Like there's the, there's the conversation of someone who was using intravenous heroin and is now just smoking marijuana. Is that harm reduction? Yeah. They're not harming themselves and probably not other people. And at the same time, could they still be even more adaptive engaging in even more healthy choices? Yes. But there's a balance, right? And I think it's keeping that spectrum open actually Mm -hmm. encourages more people to get curious, to be open, to say, I could fit somewhere in this spectrum. I totally agree with that. And I think if we try to put people in boxes, people are more likely to become defensive. It shuts down curiosity for sure. And someone might need to be on one path of sobriety and then something else changes in their life and something else happens. And I think the whole point of like healing and, and working on your mental health is at the end of the day, you have to be honest with yourself, right? At the end of the day, no therapist, no doctor, no one can tell you what's best for you. They can give you recommendations and ideas and reflect things to you, but only, you know, so to me, it's like, regardless of what your choice is, you're going to know at the end of the day, whether it's actually working for you or not. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When I, so I used to teach a class on substance use and for master's level clinicians. And the first thing that we talked about was like, what the hell is this history of addiction Mm. in the first place of substance use in the first place? Like we're human beings on planet earth that experience pain 
and found substances one day, thousands, long, long, long time ago. Yeah. But in the in modern day, what, what, what is alcohol? What is this history with drugs and alcohol? And just how did we get to where we're at, where there's this argument between being sober is better, or it's fine to drink, or how did we get here? What does that look like? (laughs) Well, I think the biggest thing that's really hard about teasing this all apart is that I mean, right, if we look at the history of mental health, the history of addiction, the history of alcohol use disorders, even just mental health disorders, right? Like we used to treat people with mental health issues as crazy. We didn't think people were capable of changing. We would put them in asylums because there was no treatment. So at first, right, like the 12-step programs were a revelation because they were the first things that said like, hey, maybe this person, it's not their fault, which was super helpful. But I think where we get into trouble is 12-step programs existed before addiction medicine existed Mm -hmm. or even right, like the field of therapy and kind of like addiction therapy existed. So uh, 12-step programs are so intertwined with like rehabs and detoxes and things like that, that there isn't a lot of separation essentially between (laughs) church and state when it comes to recovery and addiction, because they're so intertwined. And a lot of the stigma is still wrapped up in it because yes, 12-step programs were great and that they helped reduce stigma by saying these people aren't doing these things because they want to, it's not their fault, but it also had shame because it said, okay, they're bad people, but here's why. But (laughs) there was still morality tied up in it. So that still kind of exists because we now need to tease out that like they have a disease that's making them, you know, immoral. Maybe they're just in pain and that's why they're acting that way. It's an incredible community that started with a couple individuals that grew massively. And it's so like having a community is so incredibly helpful. And so I think of all the places I've worked at have been called non 12 step, right? But I emphasize that all that really means, you know, for anybody who's gone to treatment or is going to go to treatment, all that means is that there are additional clinical interventions that are being utilized outside of just the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or all the other anonymouses. Um, Anonymi? I don't know. <laughs> what, is the, what is the plural of that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. I'm going to go with Anonymi. Somebody mm. post this on their Instagram I story and tell me if we're right or wrong. One of the things I've always been a little hesitant about when it comes to the 12 step community, one of the only things actually, well, besides like, don't take medication. Cause that also yeah. makes you not sober, which is tough. Yeah. It's difficult. It's a difficult one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious your thoughts on forever being in the program mm-hmm. and just like forever defining yourself as somebody in pain that must do a, B and C forever. I think it's hard. You know, like we kind of are saying with all of this is I think it depends on the person. I mean, I can share from my experience. I was in a 12 step program and it got to the point where it just felt like I was giving more than I was kind of getting from it. And it felt like it was just overall kind of a drain on me. I mean, I found amazing community. It's something that I don't have any ill will towards. I don't have any issues with going there or going back at some point. 
I think what's hard is for some people, the label is empowering, just like, you know, Mm -hmm. a diagnostic label, figuring out why you are the way you are and putting a name to it can feel like I'm not crazy, but also we can overly attach to the label and we can start looking at everything in our life through the lens of, well, I'm just an addict or I'm just an alcoholic. That's the Mm -hmm. way I am. And then there's no space for growth or change. And and I'm a very existential therapist. So like, I don't want anybody attaching to anything, not even like their life (laughs) because impermanence is the solution to everything in the end, which that sounds like very positively negative, but we're going to roll with it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. it, It does really depend on the person. What is it that you're experiencing? What do you want to experience mm-hmm. instead? And how do we get there? That leads me perfectly into why I really wanted you on as the addiction person for the podcast, your book called yeah. Not Drinking Tonight, which by the way, I have to say, even after a very long career of drinking alcohol and a very long career of helping people recover from drinking alcohol and me over drinking myself in the past, I still have a hard time telling people Mm -hmm. that I'm not going to drink tonight. And so I'm just, thank you one for titling it, what you titled it. I think a lot of people are going to be like, oh my God, I need to see what this is. Yeah. But also what you discuss in it, like the guide to creating a sober life you love. And that's very specifically chosen. I think that sentence. So I want to get into that, but first somebody's going to pick up your book, not drinking tonight. Likely if they are thinking about reevaluating or if they already have reevaluated their relationship with alcohol, but for those that haven't, that have thought about it, and hopefully everybody here can, even if you don't have a problem, you can still evaluate your relationship. So what, what does it look like to evaluate or reevaluate your relationship with alcohol? I think one of the first steps is thinking about how alcohol is serving some type of purpose in your life. I think in general, everything we do serves some type of purpose, whether that's overall net positive or overall negative depends, (laughs) but I think it's important to look at, okay, how is alcohol or really any behavior serving me in some capacity? And also what is it costing me? What is, what is it taking away from me? How is it negatively impacting my life? And I think that's kind of where it starts. And uh, my recommendation is for people to try by um, like taking a little bit of a break, whether that's, I mean, 30 days is kind of my recommendation, but if that's too much, you could start with one week, two weeks, three weeks, because it's going to be hard for you to see all the areas where you might be relying on alcohol or using it to kind of like smooth the edges or just make life a little bit easier until you kind of take that step back. And then you can start to see, oh, like I'm using it to deal with stress or I'm using it to cope with social anxiety, or I'm using it, you know, so that I don't have to have that hard conversation. I can just drink and then I'll forget about being annoyed at this person. (laughs) Yeah, completely. I feel like that sounds so scary to do Mm -hmm. to somebody who's like, kind of like what you said in the beginning, like I haven't gone to jail. I haven't lost my job. But like, if someone was asked, like, what if you didn't drink for a month? Like for that person, that's like, like they feel that feeling inside, but they don't want to say anything like, and then they're like, why does this scare me so much? Mm -hmm. Like, what, what would you say to that person? I would say that you're conditioned to drink in all areas of your life. I mean, You can't watch a TV show without the main character 
drinking to celebrate something, drinking to deal with stress. I mean, alcohol is a main character of a lot of shows, movies, you know, media in general. To alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Even if you look at advertisements, like alcohol is sold as the solution for not being confident, for being happy, all of these types of things. So it really makes sense that you feel that way. And a lot of us started drinking in high school and college when we were young. So we never learned the skills of how do I deal with stress without a drink? How do I go on a date without a drink? How do I have sex without a drink? Yeah. We don't know how to do any of these things because we literally have never done it before. So my big thing would be, of course, you're scared. You're, you're doing something you've never done before. And not many people do. Yeah. And I think it could make us feel so, oh, now we're the ones that aren't normal because mm -hmm. it's so seemingly normal to numb out our pain or our joy or yeah. you know, accentuate the joy with alcohol. I feel like that's why the term sober curious was created so that it's not so doesn't seem so bad just getting curious about sobriety. I feel like a way to like switch that around would you're more curious about the other ways that you can manage or exactly. celebrate, you know? Yeah. And I think that is what's helpful. I mean, to me, what I think is so hard is, and I'm sure you experience this too, right? As a therapist, the whole goal is you question everything, right? You, you mm -hmm. leave no stone unturned in questioning the habits, the beliefs, the ideas that you have and seeing if they're serving you or not. But where I run into difficulty with clients is we can question the relationship with food and sleep and habits and relationships, but we get to alcohol and it's like, no, 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 mm -mm, I'm not an alcoholic. Right. And that's what I'm really looking to change with my book is that what if anyone anywhere at any time could question their relationship with alcohol and just see? Yes. Thank you for that. <laughs> we need that so badly because exactly what you said there at the end, like, oh no, I'm not an alcoholic. Just like this tear, like it's just this terrible term and it has been used terribly in society. Yeah. And yeah, it's created that extreme, right? And then the media comes in or that one family member that everybody talks about in a certain way, or, you know, it just has this negative connotation on it. So in your book, which we have minimum spectrum, right? You don't have a problem or you're a flaming alcoholic that is yeah. like awful, awful human, like not, not the case, not the case. But in your book, there's this term that really stood out to me, disordered drinking. Yeah. And that is, that feels like a magical term. And I think people will feel the same after we talk about it, but it, it allows for the spectrum of no issue issue to expand for more people to live in, for more people to find. And so, but what is that? How would you define disordered drinking? Who would fall under that category? Not diagnosing, not a diagnosis term, yes. but who would fall <laughs> under that? <laughs> I think anyone that's using, you know, right. Exactly. Like you said is right now you have to meet a certain amount of criteria to be able to be diagnosed with an alcohol use disorder. And instead, if we talk about anyone who's binge drinking, that's disordered drinking. If you're using alcohol to cope with your emotions, that's disordered drinking. It's any way that you're using alcohol in a maladaptive, unhealthy way that has the potential if continued to create more of a drinking problem or issue in the future. 
And to me, it's really important we talk about that because so many of us at certain points in our life will engage in disorder drinking, just like we probably engage in like unhealthy sleep patterns or like, right, like unhealthy times where we are working too much or we're too stressed or all of these other things. But it doesn't mean that we are going to be diagnosed with something. And that's where I think we need the term so that people can talk about it without being afraid they're going to be diagnosed. And if more people can talk about it, then we can understand these are risk behaviors, right? The more you binge drink, the more you drink to cope with your feelings, the more often you drink. It doesn't mean you have a problem, but it means that you are exhibiting patterns that could have the potential to become an issue in the future, which I think is really important because it the myth, the idea right now that you're either born an alcoholic or an addict or you're not really, really is a disservice because it tells people then people who don't think they're, they have a problem that they can and should drink or use as much as they want because that's not who they are. And there's no curiosity there. And that's so detrimental. It's, it's like anti-prevention of addiction, right? Exactly. You don't just wake up one day and you're addicted. Like there's a pathway. And I think that your term disorder drinking, it it defines the potential beginning of that pathway of like what that can look like. And it feels, yeah, it just feels very preventative to me and welcoming and like not stigmatizing, you know? Yeah. Cause I work with eating disorders a lot too. So we know, for example, that disordered eating patterns, which is anything that's like, you know, binging, restricting, purging any of these behaviors, if you engage with them, you're more likely in the future to develop an eating disorder. So why can't we use the same term where if you're using alcohol in an unhealthy way, you're more likely to develop an alcohol use disorder. It's like, yes, (laughs) it's just, it needs to be so normalized. I, you know, I think working in addiction or experiencing it, right? Like it's so it's heartbreaking because so often the stories are, I don't know how I let it get to this point. I don't know how I got here. And it's like, well, you know, and usually the conversation is like, when did you have your first drink? Yeah. When did you start drinking more than you wanted to? And, and that yeah. those questions are like, what led to your pattern of disordered drinking? Yeah. And you're saying like, let's address it now <laughs> so yeah. that we don't have to get into when our body is addicted and our mind is addicted. And so what does that look like to go from disordered drinking, not, not, mm-hmm. ne- not meeting the criteria, but drinking maladaptively? What are the signs that it is becoming an addiction and is something to really look into? I think when a few of the things start happening at the same time, I think when you're not only engaging in, right, instead of just doing one disordered drinking pattern, you're doing multiple where you need, like you were saying, you need more alcohol to feel the same effect. You're drinking more than you used to. You're drinking more often than you used to. Your goals in life start to change in order to fit the drinking behavior instead of alcohol fitting into your life. It starts damaging your relationships or other things, you know, other important people in your life. And you feel like you try to moderate or change or cut down and you're not able to. I think that's a a really big one also. So it's less to me about what happens on paper, right? Or what it would look like and more about what the experience starts to feel like for you. And I feel like that's even harder for people to look at 
is like, I think a lot of the time people don't value themselves. So they're like, I don't know, mm -hmm. like, it's fine. They're like, mm -hmm. or, you know, or it's like, well, if one of the criteria of being, of being addicted is, is trying to stop and being unsuccessful, I've never tried to stop. So I must not be addicted, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think that is what's harder about it because people can't point to it and say you have a problem because you have to be the one to kind of admit it on some level to yourself. So we work on it. We, we address the underlying issues and, um, we come out the other side. That's it's that easy. No, it's not, <laughs> not that easy, but when we do get to that point, it's like, and, and, and we're, I'm excited to next dive into more about your book. What happens when we learn, like, why do we go back? Like, why do, why does relapse happen? You know, like, mm -hmm once we already know, cause I think that's a big fear for people too, mm -hmm. is if their definition of sobriety is sobriety from all substances long-term that creates a potential uh-oh moment, a potential mm -hmm. relapse that they may be afraid of. Like what, what comes up for you around relapse? I think you're completely right with that. I think sometimes we self-sabotage because we're afraid it's easier to not try than to put ourselves out there and try and risk failure. I think the other thing that I think about a lot is shame and how important shame is with all of this. I mean, shame really to me is kind of like the glue that holds self-sabotage and relapse behaviors together. It is the fear that we're not worthy, that we're not good enough, that we're a bad person. And most people who end up in some type of maladaptive addiction, you know, alcohol use issue have done things they're probably not proud of or don't feel okay about. And instead of us facing that head on and working through it, a lot of times it's so painful that we end up just beating ourselves up, shaming ourselves, thinking that that will help us change. <laughs> and what we don't realize is shame actually makes it extremely difficult to change because it robs us of the ability to believe something different about ourselves. If I am a bad person and an alcoholic, there's no point in trying because that's who I am. That is such a common theme in, in, you know, just any, all the clients that I've worked with in the past, it's just like, one, it's like, you already have shame as you're drinking. Mm -hmm. but then the amount of shame that you experience once you've stopped is not only the shame from your drinking, but also the shame that caused you to drink in the first place. So it feels like it gets worse. And then you're like, but I was already drinking because it was already this bad. And now I can't drink. And it's that bad. It can be just so incredibly overwhelming. Absolutely. I mean, that's exactly how it is. People ask me all the time, what do I do when I relapse? And I'm like, be kind to yourself, be compassionate to yourself. Because if you beat yourself up, if you start shaming yourself, your coping skill to dealing with that pain is going to be drinking. And then you will have all the shame you felt in addition to relapsing and all of that shame. And it just keeps compounding. And I think that's where the experience of like, you just feel like you're, you know, digging that hole deeper and deeper because you are the way that you just said what you said sounded so like compassionate and humanizing. And I feel like that really leads me into one of the most important questions that I have for you today and references the subtitle of your book as well. 
a guide to creating a sober life you love. To create a life that we love implies that we know we're a human being. And I want to talk to you, to you about that, like attaching to the label or not attaching to the label of alcoholic or addict or whatever it is underneath that is a human that's alive. Mm -hmm. One, tell us about the intention of the subtitle of your book. And what do you mean by that? What do you mean by creating a life, a sober life that you love? I picked those words because I think it looks different for all of us. I think really it depends on what is important to you, what you value, but really to me, a life you love, a life of meaning is recognizing that you're a human, that you're imperfect, right? You can create a life you love that is imperfect and it will be imperfect. But if we can have the strength to face when we mess up, repair, and then move through it, like that to me is really creating a life we love. And that to me is really where we can get real stable self-worth and value from when we stop placing all of our expectations and worth on how other people think of us or what our accomplishments are or what we look like. And instead mm. we're living a life we love that's based on our values. Like that is how you work through shame. So much of shame is like, whatever your values are, you're not doing it right. And you should be adhering to these values instead. And sometimes the value is like the country values alcohol. And you're like, yeah, um, this isn't, you realize this isn't, this doesn't work for me and the life that I love. And I love that. Even if people then don't understand you, they don't like you, whatever's going on. If you're living a life based on what is important to you and what you value, that matters a lot less because you're the one who's looking at yourself in the mirror every day and in alignment. And that's where I think like true confidence and, and worth comes from. So tell us about the book. Tell us a little bit more about the book. It's the guide to doing exactly what you just described. What are people going to find within it when they pick it up? So the challenge and the, I think, best part of the book is really it'll meet you anywhere you are on this journey, whether you are just slightly interested in sober curiosity and dipping your toe in, or you've been in recovery for a really long time. It'll meet you anywhere you are on the journey. I have like a three-part framework that essentially helps you discover why you drink or why you use any substance. The book is also really about, while the overall theme of the book is not drinking, I go into other addictions, substance use disorders, relationships, gambling, eating disorders, almost anything else that we can do to control our feelings and to numb. So you'll learn about your brain and learn about why you want to numb and how shame and trauma play into that. And then there's a whole section on reparenting, which to me is extremely important. Most of us don't learn how to process our emotions, set boundaries, engage in real self-care. And then in the final part of the book, You'll learn about how to have tough conversations with people and learn how to go out and sober socialize or have sex and date when you're not drinking. And really I go into in the, the end, how to create that life you love, how to live a life based on your values. So you're not living a life that you need to escape. Thank you for writing this book. Really. Thank you. Thank you. It's so, it's so needed. So needed. What would be one tip that you could give our listeners from the book? on how to do that. Live a sober life you love. Yeah. I think the first thing that a lot of people need to start with is learning how to sit with and process their emotions. 
I think so often we don't even know what that means. We don't know what it looks like that we don't even realize we're being impacted by our emotions and we just immediately respond and react. So practicing, right? It doesn't need to look like sitting down. It doesn't need to look like meditating, but starting to befriend those kind of physiological sensations that happen at the beginning of an emotion, because the more you avoid that, the more you never ride the wave and get to the other side of, of realizing that your emotions will, like they're a wave and they will crest and you will work through them. Instead, we just avoid and then we have an outburst and then we fear the emotion. So then we avoid again rather than sitting through it. I love that tip. It really brought clarity to the fact that we feel like it's an easier road to like numb when in actuality, you're not getting rid of what it is that you're numbing. So it takes longer even to address it and process it. And it could be a maybe not less painful, but faster process to just look at the emotions to begin with because emotions are physiological reactions in our body and substances, alcohol, it's adjusting our physiology and physiology is what makes us feel. Exactly. Exactly. And I think if we're talking about that, like you were saying, yes, it feels better temporarily, but then you're left with, you never got rid of and processed that emotion or that energy. (laughs) And then you also have a lot of times the shame or the hangover or the after effects of what you did to like make a deal with the devil, essentially. Oh my God. And the hangovers are so bad. I've got a hangover. Who knows what that means? Doesn't that mean you're drunk? No, it means I was drunk yesterday. Especially like when, when you didn't want to do whatever it was that you did, like, cause you're physiologically anxious because alcohol is a depressant, Mm -hmm. but then you're psychologically like anxious as shit because you're like, what did I do? What did I say? Or, or why did I do it when I knew I didn't want to. And then it's that self-shame cycle again and again. And then it's also right that you're breaking your word to yourself over and over again. So then you can't trust yourself. And then when Mm. you want to change, you don't believe yourself that you'll change or do anything. So that also is so damaging as well. It's so hard. And then that's on the outside too, because then other people aren't trusting you. It's just this vicious cycle. So that was like, you know, quick recap of addiction sucks. Don't do it. right? (laughs) (laughs) But what about sobriety? Because I think Mm -hmm. people are also afraid that sobriety sucks. And so what would be a myth about sobriety that, that you really want people to know the truth about today? I think so many people don't explore sobriety because they think it will make them boring or uninteresting, or their life will just be totally on pause and they'll never be able to do anything fun again. And I find that it's actually completely the opposite. I mean, you may discover things about yourself that you didn't know before, but you will just find the truer version of yourself. You're not going to change or become a different person than you want to be. You just Mm -hmm. will stop pretending in the places that aren't authentic to you. So I was terrified when I stopped drinking that I like would lose all my friends and I wouldn't get married and all of these things. And I do more, have more fun and more authentic, have deeper connections because I'm actually showing up authentically and doing things that I like love and care about. It's really hard to create a life you love by your design when you're spending a lot of your time, like not being there, right? When you get drunk, like 
your conscious brain goes away. So you, you don't have control over what you're doing. And if you're doing that a lot, you know, you're, you're spending a lot of your time, not, not being there. (laughs) Yeah. That's a really great point. And I love the way that you put that. It's like, are you actually even living your life? If you're not consciously there, like I'm like sitting with that. I'm like, wow, (laughs) I'm hoping that like, that's the reaction that we get as well. I mean, really, because that's really what it comes down to. And that's, that's what I hear so much from, from my clients is like, I don't know what happened in my life. Like Mm -hmm. I'm 50, I'm 60. I've been drinking Mm -hmm. like this for 20, 30 years. And like, there's nothing really you can say to that person. Like you can't get that time back. And it's just allowing them to grieve in front of you or with you. And it's so heartbreaking. And so any prevention, like anybody reading this book, anybody just being open to reevaluating, to considering that they may be disordered in their drinking patterns can truly save what, what we know of this one life and, and help you find some joy in it. Well, thank you so much for talking about the topic. I want to turn back on you. Anything like how is like, what is it like being X amount of years into recovery? Where are you at now? What, what, what's next for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I am seven and a half years sober. I never imagined writing a book on this ever. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I think that is like the coolest thing about sobriety too, is you just like become a bolder more authentic version of yourself. And it gives you a confidence, I think, because you're not reliant on something. What's next for me is, I mean, I have a practice in Philly that we're expanding and, you know, I'm promoting this book and um, I'm on social media. So I'm just trying to enjoy the whole, the whole process. And in my life right now, I'm trying to learn how to, how to rest too. (laughs) And not, and like, like, I think sometimes I can get really driven and just saying yes to every opportunity. And it's also like taking the moments to savor and to slow down and to be present with what you've done and accomplished too. And thank you for sharing that part too, about like trying to rest, because I feel like, you know, so often when people hear like, I have a book and I have a business and I'm married and it's like, oh, you know, you must have it all so figured out. And it's like, no, I'm a human. Like, I don't even, I'm a, I'm a therapist and I don't know how to rest sometimes. And that's so important. Absolutely. It's so funny how you think when you get something, you're, you will be a totally different person. And I, I've given the example to a lot of people of like, your book comes out and it's amazing and exciting, but then you have to walk your dogs and pick up like the dog crap. You know, like it doesn't, nothing (laughs) prevents us or saves us from the pain of being human. It's, it's always there. What would you say is the biggest takeaway that our listeners should, should carry with them from this episode? I think that you're worthy of living a life you love, that you're able and you're brave enough to be able to question anything that doesn't serve you. Mm. And that really questioning your relationship with anything is the biggest way to be able to build confidence and live a life that's authentically you. You can do it. You can do it. Yeah. And you really can. And like one step at a time, it can be really overwhelming, really scary to think about your whole life or years or months. So it's like, I mean, that is really where I love the 12 step idea of it's like one day at a time. That's how you do it. Small, small steps. Amanda E. White, LPC, Not Drinking Tonight is her new book, A Guide to Creating a Sober Life You Love. Where can our listeners find it and where can they find you on social or your practice? Yeah, so you can find it anywhere books are sold. 
Amazon, your local bookstore, Barnes and Noble, all those places. If you live abroad, the best place to get it is through a website called Book Depository. My social media handle is Therapy for Women. And also if you want to go there, I have links to where you can get the book. And my practice is therapyforwomencenter.com. We have licensed therapists in Philly and in 17 other states across the country. Whoa. Whoa. I didn't know it was 17. Yeah. So impressive. Wow. Congratulations. Thank That's you. Awesome. Yeah. Last question that I have for you, Amanda, it's our segment. Oh my God, you're a human. <laughs> what is one thing that is unapologetically human that you do? The most joy I feel like I get day to day is like from my dog and <laughs> my husband and I have like a hundred nicknames for him. And today I did some, like we it's snowing in Philadelphia and we got him these little booties and we like took him for a walk. And it was just, my favorite thing was like watching him hobble around in his little snow. (laughs) So cute. What kind of dog is it? Um, he's like a pit mix. Oh my God. Little tiny baby feet. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Amanda. This was so helpful for anyone who's listening. What do you think about anything that we've talked about? What do you think about the takeaway of designing your life and looking at your emotions and just considering that things could be different? Let us know on social media, tag me, tag Amanda at therapy for women and let us know. Let us know. Let's start to build a community around this and keep the discussion going. Thank you so much, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Human First. Please subscribe, leave a review. It really helps with being able to keep this podcast free and share it on your social media to help spread the message. Tag me at the period truth period doctor. As always, I'm glad that you exist. See you next week.